I'm Catherine Bray. I'm a film critic and Saw fan, and this is Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast. As in all of Jigsaw's most elaborate schemes, I am not alone, trapped with me in an improvised operating theatre in an abandoned meatpacking factory, are some fellow sawheads. I'm Anna Bogutska, I'm a writer, saw fan and co-founder of the horror collective The Final Girls. I'm Charlie Shackleton, I'm a documentary filmmaker and occasional film critic, and uh, more importantly, an absolutely mega sawhead. So, for Seeing Saw, we are engaged in a rewatch of every movie in the Saw franchise, counting down to the release of Spiral, starring Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Max Minghella, Marisol Nichols, a truly incredible cast. Spiral is the brand new chapter in The Book of Saw, out May 14th or May 17th if you're in the UK. But this week, it's the turn of Saw 3. There will be discussion of blood and guts and improvised brain surgery. There will be spoilers. And if you're new to the franchise, we'd suggest watching Saw 3 first, then listening to the episode. Now, before we come to all that, let's set the scene. Anna, what's going on in the wider world of film as Saw 3 hits cinemas? I mean, there's a lot of good stuff happening for British cinema. 2006 is an extremely successful year for British cinema. But in the horror world, there's a ton of remakes on a sliding scale of successful to unnecessary to offensive. Stuff like The Night of the Living Dead 3D, The Omen, The Bad Black Christmas remake. And there's also some really, really excellent foreign language horror films. So there's a little, you know, mini invasion of non-English speaking horror films at this time. There's Them, Shaitan, both at the tail end of the new French extremity movement. There's Pulse by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And obviously The Host by Bong Joon-ho also sees the light of day this year. So Saw 3 is coming out in a year where English language horror films are not that interesting. I'm almost whispering this. Apart from Saw 3, of course. So it is kind of the best of the bunch. Beautiful. And Charlie, what's going on in the Saw franchise more specifically? Tell us all about Saw 3. Yes. So I will give you a quick plot recap of the events of this film, which are mercifully pretty straightforward, I would say, in the scheme of Saw. It's the first sequel to start right when the previous one left off. So we rejoin Detective Eric Matthews, our hero from the second film, as he's trapped in the bathroom from the first film, and he attempts to free himself, not using the conventional saw-to-the-foot approach. The methodology established in Saw 1? Yeah. Controversially, he instead takes the toilet tank and batters his foot until it will slip through the shackle. I think it's a superior method. It's clever. It's less invasive. Mm. I'm just surprised that he's confident it will work. I mean, he's proven correct, but I would be worried that you go to all that hassle and then it doesn't come through anyway. And then you still have to saw your foot off. He's got a lot of upper body strength, I believe it. Anyway, it works for him. Sometime later, a SWAT team, led by Officer Daniel Rigg, find another jigsaw victim. They call in Detective Alison Kerry, who we'll remember from the previous films, and who is now in charge of the jigsaw case. Played by the great Dina Meyer. Love her. Indeed. She discusses this new victim and the saw trap that has befallen them with Detective Mark Hoffman, a new character who only appears fleetingly in this film, but uh, one to maybe commit to memory for later. And they realise that this particular victim, whose name was Troy, has been through this trap where he has these chains hooked through about 18 different parts of his body. And to escape the trap, he had to rip them all from his body before, I think, a bomb? A nail bomb, I think. Mm -hmm. Goes off in the room. So hard enough as it is, but they also realise that the door to the room has been welded shut. So even if he had been able to rip all the chains off, which ultimately wasn't possible anyway, he would have been stuck anyway. That's not fair. It's simply not fair. (laughs) That is not the jigsaw way. The police managed to recover one of Jigsaw's patented VHS prompts and Detective Alison Kerry takes it home with her to study it, see if they can work anything out from the tape. While she's watching that tape back, something spooky happens and she suddenly sees herself on the video monitor because she is in fact being surveilled by one of Jigsaw's pig-headed assistants who abducts her and puts her into a trap which, wouldn't you know it, also proves to be inescapable. From there we meet a forlorn surgeon 
named Dr. Lynn Denlon, who will be one of our protagonists for the film. And we meet Lynn in the midst of a sort of lover's tiff with a man who tells her, in the first of several very carefully worded plot hints, what he wants from her is a divorce. So she says, what do you want from me? He says, a divorce. So it's very important. are we to understand that he's her husband? One might assume that he's her husband. One might assume. One might assume. Dr. Lynn Denon is subsequently abducted and taken to Jigsaw's latest workshop, even grander in scale than the previous two. He is upgrading film by film by a mysterious figure who is soon revealed to be our old friend Amanda Young, Jigsaw's assistant from the previous film. And Dr. Lynn Denon is told by a recumbent seemingly very unwell John Kramer, Jigsaw himself, that she has to keep him alive for as long as it takes this new game that he's devised to play out. And if she doesn't manage to keep him alive, a device that Amanda fits around Dr. Lynn Denlin's neck, which is a ring of shotgun blasts that will absolutely go bananas on her head. It's like a bomb necklace. It's a bomb necklace. That's it's a, a lovely good sort of chunky necklace effect, a costume jewellery look, but deadly. It's a real statement necklace, I'd say. <laughs> That's the one, statement piece. So she must treat Jigsaw in his makeshift hospital room within the workshop, keep him alive just long enough for the game to end, or else when his heart rate monitor flatlines, her head will, bad things will happen. <laughs> <laughs> the game in question begins as a bloke called Jeff wakes up in a crate, for reasons that are never really explained, quickly gets out of the crate and he's informed that he's going to be going through a series of tests because of his great sin, which is that he has become unforgivably vengeful following the death of his son Dylan in a car accident. Quite a classical theme, vengeance. Mm. Yes, he's become consumed by these dreams of murderous revenge against the drunk driver who killed his son Dylan. And in another very carefully worded moment, Jigsaw tells him on the tape, these tests will lead Jeff to, quote, the man responsible for the loss of your child. Ooh, love a carefully worded hint. One might assume that would be the drunk driver who killed Dylan. One has been set up to make all kinds of assumptions. That's the most British way of talking about this film. I love it. So in the first test that Jeff encounters, he comes face to face with a woman called Danica Scott. She was an eyewitness to the car accident that killed his son, but she drove on and did nothing. Callous. Very heartless. She's in this room where these jets of very, very cold water are being sprayed at her. In each test, Jeff has to forgive and then offer some sort of small self-sacrifice in order to save these people who he feels have wronged him. In the second test, he encounters Judge Halden, the judge from the trial of the drunk driver who killed his son, who gave the driver an unforgivably light sentence. The judge failed Jeff and his son. Exactly. And likewise, Jeff is asked to forgive the judge and he has to make this self-sacrifice in this case, burning up a furnace of his dead child's toys in order to get the key that will free the judge from a vat rapidly filling with pig guts. Both an emotional and disgusting test. Meanwhile, back in the makeshift hospital room, Jigsaw's looking a little worse for wear. He's starting to fall in and out of consciousness and Dr. Lynn Denlin decides that what he really needs is brain surgery. She suggests that that would need to take place at a hospital, perhaps. But no, no, no. Amanda says that they're not leaving the room and Dr. Lynn Denham will have to perform the operation using whatever tools she can improvise from the workshop. Which, to be fair, if you're going to have to improvise tools anywhere, Jigsaw's workshop, it's what pretty more well possibly need? Perfect DIY operating theatre. So she elects to perform this improvised brain surgery. During the surgery, which she performs with a, a power drill... Jigsaw starts to hallucinate these visions of his ex-wife, Jill Tuck, and he sees the two of them in the park. They're kind of all lovey-dovey. And because he's in and out of consciousness at this point, he accidentally professes his love to Dr. Lynn Denlin. And seeing this, Amanda completely wigs out. He thinks that his relationship with her is being usurped by his new relationship with Dr. Lynn Denlin. And she quickly leaves the room and commits an act of self-harm and then cues some flashback material by looking uh, deeply into the corner and then the, the screen goes all wavy and we see the past, namely the burgeoning relationship between John Kramer, the jigsaw killer, and his apprentice Amanda Young. We see months of them seemingly almost living together in the workshop 
and both starting to dress quite similarly in this hot topic garb. They almost look like post-divorce for him, almost a bit of a subdom vibe. <laughs> it's got a big elder goth vibes, they're yeah. cool. the he, whole dress attire thing. There's a real mood to it. And a lovely chance for cinematographer David Armstrong to sort of play around with different palettes and really root us in those flashbacks. He's doing lovely work in this instalment of the franchise. Yeah, he's playing around here, but elsewhere, boy, it's green. (laughs) (laughs) This film. The franchise never gets greener than Saw 3. It's crazy. It is the greenest film of the franchise. It's not easy being green. (laughs) I'm not sure that even works as a joke. What does that mean? (laughs) I think it works. In like a sort of demented jigsawy type of way, it works. <laughs> so in these flashbacks, we also see that Amanda has been helping set up various traps that we may remember from the previous films, namely the bathroom trap from the first film, and also that she went back to finish Adam Stanheit off in that fated bathroom because she was having nightmares where he would visit her in the night and she felt guilty. And by finish Adam off in a bathroom, you mean kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Finally, Jeff and the still-alive Judge Halden make their way into the third and final test where they find the drunk driver, Timothy Young, trapped in this very uh, intense-looking rack of metal gears that are going to rotate his limbs and head off. Yep, the twisty machine. Twisty crucifix thing. It is a crucifix, isn't it? Yeah, with a twist. (laughs) Love my crucify with a twist. (laughs) Jeff, after a bit of emotional back and forth, Jeff does elect to save Timothy, but inadvertently kills Judge Halden in the process, and besides, is too late, and Timothy Young dies anyway. With the tests complete, John Kramer orders Amanda Young to release Dr. Lynn Denlon, because she has kept him alive through the entirety of Jeff's tests. But Amanda Young stubbornly refuses, even as John warns that doing so will have tragic consequences. Amanda reveals that she has betrayed John's advice before and and indeed his overarching ethos because she's created these inescapable traps. You know, she says these people don't deserve to live. It's not about teaching them a lesson. It's just about punishing them and reveals that she also went back and uh, attempted to kill Detective Eric Matthews after he was left in the bathroom and they had a scuffle in a corridor and she left him for dead as well. Finally, Amanda shoots Dr. Lynn Denlon just as... Jeff arrives in the hospital room and is revealed, in fact, to be Jeff Denlon, Lynn's husband. What? But wait, I thought she was with some guy who wanted a divorce earlier. When the man at the beginning said all he wanted from her was a divorce, he meant her divorce from Jeff all along. Oh, I see now. That is a twist. Great twist. Also a twist to the fact that while I respectfully refer to all of the characters by their first and second names, I've only been referring to him as Jeff throughout. That is the special kind of touch that you bring to these recaps, Charlie. I love it. I've been playing my own game with you both all along. I feel played. (laughs) In a rage, Jeff Denlon shoots Amanda Young, and as she's lying there dying, Jigsaw reveals that he already knew about her subterfuge and that she hadn't been following his ethos correctly, and that all of this, the hospital trap and everything, was actually a test for her to see if she would stay true to the premise of the whole game and free Lynn Denlon. Because Jigsaw, of course knew that Jeff, the husband, would come in and take his revenge if not. Twists on twists. It's a meta-saw movie. And just when you think it's all over, Jigsaw tells Jeff that he now must forgive him, Jigsaw, John Kramer, if he wants his wife to live. Lynn Denon, it should be said, at this point has been shot but is still just about surviving. Maybe if an ambulance comes quickly enough, she can pull through. But she's still got her statement piece, shotgun, necklace in place. And so... Jigsaw tells Jeff he needs to let him live, forgive him, and then he can get an ambulance there to save Lynn. Jeff does a sort of fake out, like he is going to forgive him, but then raises an enormous buzzsaw above his head and slits Jigsaw's throat, killing our franchise villain for good. Love him, love Jeff, absolute drama queen. In his final moments, this seems to go on for an inordinate amount of time, given that he's already had his throat slit, but Jigsaw gets a tape recorder out and uh, plays yet one more cassette, which reveals to Jeff that he's made a terrible mistake. There's always another cassette. Jigsaw's so committed to the twists, I admire it, I respect it. Because in fact, you may have thought that, quote, the man responsible for the loss of your child was Timothy Young, the drunk driver who we just saw die in a previous scene. In fact, 
it was Jigsaw himself who has abducted Jeff and Lynn's daughter, Corbett, and is keeping her held somewhere unknown in a dank basement. And Jeff needed to keep Jigsaw alive if he wanted to find out where she was. So there were two children, double twists, twists on twists. Jigsaw finally expires, and of course, as his heart rate flattens, Lynn's head, it's a bad scene. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the door slams shut, and Jeff is trapped there alone in this room of carnage. With his wife's exploded head. So to recap the recap, it's Jeff's test, and this is running in parallel with Jigsaw and Amanda in the OR getting some emergency brain surgery, and that's Saw 3. You make it sound so simple. (laughs) (laughs) It feels to me like really the star of this particular film is Amanda. She's the one sort of taking the reins here, would you say? 100% this is Amanda's time to shine. And it is her test. This is, I want to say, what her second, arguably third test in the franchise so far because I still consider Saw 2 a sort of probation period for Amanda as Jigsaw's accomplice. But as Professor Shackleton's recap hinted at, this is very much about the relationship between Jigsaw and his acolyte, Amanda Young, isn't it? I love those flashbacks. What a little domestic life they lead. Very curious. I'm very into Amanda's outfits, her very new metal. I'm going to look the part of a serial killer. She commits to it. There's the cargo pants. There's the very high boots, the red. She always has a knife on her. The haircut is very Y2K fashion. That's very now. And also, at the heart of it, though, is she a villain or is she a very, very disturbed victim of Jigsaw, like a long-term victim. I think that's the thing that really stood out to me re-watching the film twice in one week. I hadn't noticed just how deeply sad she is and how desperate she is for Jigsaw's approval. She really flips when he accidentally, in his haze, in the middle of her backyard brain surgery, says to Dr. Lynn Dedlin, I love you, because he thinks that he's seen his ex-wife, Jill. And Amanda just goes, not berserker, but you can see the fear in her eyes that she might be being replaced. And I don't think it's necessarily a romantic love. It's sort of a borderline fatherly slash approval seeking type of love. She desperately needs Jigsaw to trust her and trust her implicitly. And he clearly doesn't because this is once again a test. So I would argue that this is one of the worst things about Jigsaw's personality. It's not the murdering. It's not the torturing. It's the fact that he's quite a micromanaging boss. (laughs) Micromanaging boss father as well, which is a disturbing combination. But I think we should say Shawnee Smith, her performance, I think, is one of the best in the franchise because she does really have to negotiate playing all of those different levels and making sure that it remains credible that Amanda would do all of the things that she does in the franchise. And I think she pulls it off, which Mm. is no mean feat. She has a great line in the violent shaking of the head while looking horrified. She'll (laughs) kind of toss her head back and forth when something really bad is happening. Mm. She did it in the previous film when the guy cut the number from the back of his neck. And in this film, she does it quite a lot just when emotionally bad things are happening, Mm. which actually imbues some real feeling in these films that can become quite mechanical at times. Yeah, this is, I would say, one of the most emotional of the Saw films, definitely so far. And I think that's very much the intention as well, because this is Lee Whannell's return to the franchise as a writer. He did not write the script for the second one. Well, it was co-written by him, but this is the one where he came back and he wrote it from scratch. And he even said that this film needed to be much more rooted in emotional horror as opposed to the mechanics and the trappings and the twists and the twists within the twists, even though it still has all of that. The tension between Jigsaw and Amanda is where the actual kind of psychological horror lies. Yeah, and I think it does a really nice job of lending the creepiness of the first sort with the almost more procedural energy and imagination of the second one. Certainly, I think it's the most theatrical of the franchise so far. I think it might be time to talk about boot crabs. <laughs> time has to arrived. talk about what, Charlie? And I will let you in on a little tradition that Catherine and I have developed, uh, which is the phenomenon of boot crabs. And this applies to all horror movies. Yes. So the inspiration for this comes from the film I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm-hmm. don't know how well you remember that film, but there's a scene with Jennifer Love Hewitt when she feels she's being pursued by this uh, unknown killer. And she's driving along in the car, and then she hears this strange scrabbling coming from her boot. And so she pulls the car over 
opens up the boot, and what's inside? Whole load of crabs. Thousands of crabs. <laughs> Thousands of crabs this. in the boot. Or the trunk, if you're American, they're trunk crabs. So there's a corpse in there, but the main prevailing thing you remember is that it's covered with crabs. So she pulls the car out, she slams the boot shut, runs off to get her mates, brings them back right away to look at these crabs, open up the boot, what's in there? Pristine, empty, maybe a few tools. Not a single crab inside? Not even, like, crab detritus. <laughs> Not even crab sticks. It's been freshly detailed somehow. (laughs) And so this got us discussing a fairly common horror phenomenon where a killer will do something in order to create a, a fairly theatrical, quite spooky effect from the perspective of the victim that would have required quite an unfathomable amount of practical work to achieve. And so in that case, it would be him getting the hoover out, getting all the little corners presumably some sort of air freshening to get rid of the smell of crab. (laughs) You don't know that there's no smell of crab, in fairness. Well, I'm going by the characters. It's a visual medium, Charlie. They betray no hint of crab smell. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. They're not like, whoa, this whiffs. Yeah, like if a mate of mine said that, oh, this trunk used to be filled up with crabs and there was not a crab inside, but I could still smell the crab, I'd believe her. So needless to say, the Saw films are full of these sorts of moments. Like Jigsaw is nothing if not a creator of theatrical experiences. My favourite, I think, in this film, we alluded to it quickly in the plot recap, but is when Detective Alison Kerry is at home re-watching one of the Jigsaw tapes in order to investigate whether there's any clues in it. And suddenly it cuts from the tape to a shot of her in her bedroom, shot from within the uh, cupboard in the room. And obviously it's a very spooky effect. She starts shooting into the cupboard because she thinks there's some sort of jigsaw apprentice hiding away in there. And lo and behold, there is, and they get her and take her off to be killed. What I like to imagine is how they set up that AV situation. I'm imagining a SCART splitter box with dual inputs, one for the VHS player, because she's got to be able to set up that side of things when she comes home and be none the wiser that there's anything untoward going on. So I'm imagining there's a splitter around the back which allows them to switch to the live feed <laughs> seamlessly uh, such that they can then create this terrifying effect. And well worth it, I would say. Yeah, the thing I love about the boot crabs moments in Saw is that I think that they are achievable generally within the time frame like they're elaborate but it's not like in i know what you did last summer where you're like there's no way he got all of those crabs out of the boot in time there's a bit in the commentary i think it's on saw one where somebody is criticizing whether jigsaw could have done something or other and lee Wanell just says he could he could do it and that's my <laughs> that's my answer too for all of these moments i subscribe to this he could not just because he's an engineer but also because he is extremely single-minded and dedicated Two very good qualities. He is. And he's brave, too. I mean, in this film, it's a major plot point that he wants somebody to do improvised brain surgery on him with a drill. And it sort of answers this idea that would you put yourself through these kinds of things, Jigsaw? Well, yes, he will. He will Mm. force a doctor to get a drill out and perform some actually quite accurate brain surgery based on a brain surgery simulator that I used to play on when I was about 11 or 12 And this is genuinely what you do. You make four little holes with a drill and then you use a buzzsaw thing, not one from your garage, to join up the little drilled holes in in the skull and then you lift the skull piece out, which is exactly what happens in this movie. So props for accuracy. I think the only thing that they don't do is that you're meant to keep the site of the drill bit connecting with the skull. You're meant to keep that cold with cold water because otherwise the friction on the skull will heat up the brain underneath and you'll potentially cause some damage to that. But I think Jigsaw is generally just such a sort of hard-as-nails guy that maybe he doesn't need that. He can handle his brain being heated up. I'm both impressed and mildly terrified of you right now. (laughs) That's the vibe I try to cultivate (laughs) with this podcast, Anna. We're saying that the $10 million movie is loosely accurate based on the children's CD-ROM. It's not a children's CD-ROM, Charlie. It was genuinely software for training young medical students. But I think with the brain surgery, as well as so much else that happens in his workshop in the course of this film, he's invested in this idea of creating theatre. One of my favourite moments in this film, which actually kind of sets it apart a bit from the others, is how quickly when Lynn is kidnapped, it's revealed who has kidnapped her, where she's been taken. They shove all the lights on. You get to see all of what the traps he's working on. It's kind of out in the open and you get more time to kind of 
I suppose it's similar to the bathroom trap in the first film in that sense, that you get to think about the terms of it and place yourself in this theatrical world. And we're moving between these scenes very elegantly with the transitions that Saw is quite famous for in the particularly the Darren Lynn Balsman era. Lovely practical transitions. I think Dina Meyer has a fantastic one where she's in the office and then we're transitioning into the next scene and what Dina Meyer has to do as Detective Alison Kerry is run around the back of some sets, take all of her clothes off and get into a bath with like, her hair all wet and everything before the camera reaches her on the other side of the wall. And it's just a lovely, lovely attention to detail that I think not all film directors would necessarily think to do. We keep using the word theatricality, but I mean it in its most literal sense. It's something you could be watching in a theatre mm. as a very entertaining kind of grand guignol play. Oh, 100%. Even as listening to you speak, I was just imagining what Saw the theatre play would look like. Oh, they've got to do it, please. If you're listening, producers of Saw, the theatrical version would be wonderful. Saw the musical. (laughs) So something that pops up in this film and indeed will recur throughout the franchise is the idea that Amanda has been creating these inescapable traps and that this represents a betrayal of the pure jigsaw ethos because you're meant to give people a chance to escape. What do we think of these inescapable traps? (laughs) Okay, so I have some thoughts here. Mostly they're going to be defending Amanda. So aside from the fact that she's been consistently tested, so she doesn't really know what ground she stands on with Jigsaw, even though he demands complete and utter submission from her. He literally asks for her to give him his entire life, everything in her life and in her being to dedicate herself to his cause. But he also then tests her continuously. And his big thing at the end of this movie is that you failed, you are not going to be the next Jigsaw, basically. You do not get this job, Amanda, because you do not understand my philosophy. You have to give people a chance. They have to be able to make a choice whether to save themselves or not. But they're coming from very different places. We get a lot of very juicy character development for both of them in this film, right? And I'm sorry, but Jigsaw, John Kramer does not have as much trauma on his shoulders as Amanda does. I'm not here to justify murder or to support murder in any way. You sort of sound like you are, but I'm here for it. (laughs) In the world of Saw, though, I can see where Amanda's coming from. And I can also see and understand the frustration of her being like, yes, Mr. Jigsaw, I will give you literally everything my entire life. You did literally put me in a reverse bear trap. I got out of it. Apparently that was not enough. Now you also want my entire soul, my entire being, my life dedicated to your philosophy, not mine. And I'm not allowed to evolve that philosophy in any way. What if she wants to make inescapable traps? Maybe that's the next evolution of the Saw franchise. She's not allowed to experiment with them. Because he is a very micromanaging boss. So if she really was there at any point to continue his legacy and continue his work, he should have allowed her to reach that point where she can actually do the traps and let people escape. I mean, in a previous episode, I think we said that Jigsaw's main ideology is that he just cannot accept any kind of human failing. And I think to narrow in even further, it's that he has this very strict idea about what justice is. And that he is the ultimate arbiter. And so if you fall either side of that, you're wrong and must be punished. And we see in this film, Detective Alison Kerry, who goes through one of the early traps in the film, we're told she's being punished for being uh, too obsessed with the dead. I mean, she's a homicide detective. Yeah. So she doesn't have much choice in the matter. But I guess Jigsaw's saying, like, don't take your work home with you. Guys, 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 guys. I'm just going to defend Jigsaw by saying he set this thing up Amanda, if you want to do it your way, you there are plenty more murders out there for you to go and <laughs> play with. That sandbox is open. This is his thing. You're under my roof. You live by my rules. So that's our take on Saw 3. But there's one person whose opinion on it we're really excited to share. The writers. Anna, you were lucky enough to sit down with the man who created Jigsaw, Lee Wanell. I did indeed. So before we rank the traps of Saw 3, here's my conversation with their architect. Lee, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for giving up a little bit of your time to chat to us for seeing Saw. And I wanted to start with a a little fangirl moment, if I may, because, and I mentioned (laughs) this in the very first episode of, of the podcast, the first Saw film 
was my a very personal one for me as a horror fan, as a lifelong horror fan, because I think I count it as one of my horror coming out moments because it was a film that I actively started showing people. And I remember showing it to my then teenage boyfriend and just looking at his face intently and seeing his reactions to the entire film because I was watching it for the second <laughs> or the third time with him. And it, it means a lot to me to get to, to chat and revisit it, revisit the films with Charlie and Catherine and to get to talk to you as well about the, the making of them. Oh, well, thank you. That's great. I mean, it's funny. I have heard that statement a lot from people over the years, whether it's people I've met in person at conventions or online uh, on Twitter. You know, a, a lot of people will tell me that Saw and the Saw movies were their introduction to horror and a, a, a lot of teenagers. And I, I realize in talking to them that Saw has functioned for them the way Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street function for me. You, and, and in saying that, you have to understand that I really separate the first Saw film from the sequels. Like they mm-hmm. mean two different things. I, 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 I have affection for both, but for me, first Saw movie on its own is huge. I mean, it's, it changed my life, obviously, in huge ways. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the first film that I uh, had ever written that was released um, you know, my friend James directed it. We we had mm. been wishing and dreaming to make a film. This was our goal in life. And when we were actually making Saw, it was it was a huge deal for us in that respect. It was the sort of culmination of all these years of dreaming and talking about making a movie. And then we went to Sundance with it and we saw it get embraced by the viewing public. You know, I remember driving around LA on the night the film opened and seeing lines of people outside theatres. And so that first film has a special place in my heart. The sequels were kind of an afterthought. We were never thinking about making sequels. I think a lot of Saw fans out there see all the Saw movies as kind of one movie in the same way Mm. that when I was a kid, I saw all the Freddy Krueger movies as one movie. Yeah. You know, and, and in fact, I was introduced to the Friday the 13th movies with part six, I think. I was staying over at a friend's house. He had it on VHS I was kind of scared to watch it, but I, yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit that I was scared. So he said, do you want to watch Friday the 13th part six? And I was like, yeah, of course. (laughs) And then I think I watched part four and then part eight. Like I, I didn't watch them in order. I, I don't think I had the respect for any chronology. If I'm being honest to this day, I haven't seen the first Friday the 13th movie, the original. I just haven't gotten around to it. That's my biggest horror faux pas. What's interesting to me is, when I converse with some of the Saw fans online, I can tell that they came into the Saw movies the same way. The, the first Saw movie was not the one that they identify with the most. And mm. a lot of times they're talking about characters that I don't know anything about. <laughs> They'll be asking <laughs> me about like, you know, so was Detective Hoffman really wanting to put so-and-so? And I'm like, I'm lost because I'm like, you're talking about part mm-hmm. five here and I didn't have anything to do with that and I don't. It's just, it's really interesting to me the way I separate it in my mind. And, and you know what? It, it makes a lot of sense when you, when you talk about it in, in that way. And to, to bring up, I find it really curious that you bring up Nightmare on Elm Street because one of the, the ways in through that is, you know, do you want to watch the new Freddy Krueger movie? You know, the villain is the standout of a lot of horror franchises. And you created that as well with, with Jigsaw. So I was wondering, and I was reading, kind of catching up on a couple of interviews that you've given along the way about Saw, and I read that you you were inspired to kind of give Jigsaw health issues, to to give him a disease because of your own experiences of some time you spend in a hospital. So I was wondering kind of how, when you were writing and coming up and creating this villain that would become the heart of this franchise, how did you envision Jigsaw being part of kind of a a canon of cinematic villains. I mean, when we wrote that first script, I didn't envisage him being a part of a canon of cinematic villains at all. Like we we never could have possibly predicted there would be any sequels, uh, that first Saw movie. You have to understand the, the vacuum in which that film was written. James and I were film students. We had attended RMIT 
in Melbourne studying film. And uh, when we finished film school, we were kicking around for a long time in kind of boring jobs and making little short films and uh, trying to get various little things off the ground, but nothing was going anywhere really uh, until the day we finally decided we were going to have to pay for a film ourselves. We, we, we finally came to that realisation that no one was going to give us money to make a film. We were going to have to be the ones paying for it. And we were really inspired by the Blair Witch Project mm-hmm. and films like Pi, you know, these self-financed. You, you hear these fairy tale stories and you kind of block out the fact that for every Pi and every Blair Witch Project, there's a thousand movies, <laughs> a thousand self-financed feature films that don't see the light of day and stay in the guy's mm-hmm. garage or the girl's garage. So we came up with the money and our first problem was we didn't, we were like, how are we going to get this out there? Who's going to distribute it? We thought that probably we would take it to festivals. That was our big goal. You know, when, you, when you're thinking about taking a self-financed horror feature to a film festival, you're not thinking, oh, I wonder what the sequels will be about. You're thinking, mm-hmm. I wonder if we can get anybody to see this. And so it, 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 we, we just weren't thinking of it in terms of the canon of, of the law. We, I was trying to come up with a compelling villain Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember we had come up with the basic story for the film and we were really excited about it, both James and I. And so when I was writing the screenplay, I, I needed to come up with a motivation for the, mm-hmm. for, the, for the killer, for the villain. And I'm thinking, okay, why? So this guy has locked these two people in a room and he's testing them out. He's playing this game. Why? What's his, is he just a sick person who likes to play games with people? I don't feel like that's enough. I need a real, what is his true motivation? You know, in the film Seven, mm-hmm. um, the motivation of the serial killer was this religious dogma and his, you mm-hmm. know, his his belief that society was sick and needed to be punished. And and so I, I was thinking, you know, what what is the motivation here? And um, I had been suffering from anxiety, although I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it was mm-hmm. anxiety. That would have solved a lot of problems if I had known I was suffering from anxiety. I was having all these physical problems with my body. I was having constant headaches and, you know, blurred vision, tiredness, fatigue. And I really thought I was sick and I was going to the hospital. And as a 23-year-old young man, that was pretty scary to be in a hospital I, for the first time in my life to be sitting there. And I remember one day waiting for my appointment to have a, an MRI, I think, and there was a person waiting there whose hair had fallen out. They were clearly suffering from cancer or had been going through chemo treatment. And it just kind of really shook me up. And I guess that's what spurred the idea for Jigsaw to be mm. motivated by his own brush with cancer and his belief that um, people, he was angry about his diagnosis and he wanted to punish people who had the gift of their health, you know. So anyway, mm. it, yeah, that that kind of is what led to the to the villain's motivation, but it certainly didn't have anything to do with um, wanting the film film's villain to be iconic and um, you know and sit alongside Freddy Krueger. I think he definitely sits alongside Freddy Krueger now, though. I wanted to yeah, chat in, a in retrospect, <laughs> it does. Oh, absolutely, and I wanted to chat a little bit about Amanda because. She is as much of a villain, well, in the second and the third Saw films, but mm-hmm. I, I is also personally one of my favorite characters in the franchise. So I'm mm-hmm. thinking specifically now of her in Saw 3. One of the, the core things that stands out from rewatching the film is her relationship with Jigsaw. It seems to be kind of a the big emotional relationship at the heart of the of the film. So I was wondering, how do you see particularly in that film, the relationship between Amanda and Jigsaw? Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, again, that was something that wasn't really planned for. Um, When I wrote that first movie, I was thinking Mm. that this would be interesting if we had a survivor of one of his tests who felt that he had helped them, that Jigsaw had actually pulled the wool off their eyes and they'd had this cult-like transformation. And that was just an interesting idea. But when they started making sequels, much to my surprise, mm-hmm. and I, I was involved in two of the sequels, I wrote mm-hmm. the second and the third film, yeah. I, um, 
you know, when you when you write a sequel, you're kind of reverse engineering it because you're gluing more story onto a story that was supposedly done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like the best way, the best analogy I can come up with is that you say to somebody, uh, a horse walks into a bar, the bartender says, why the long face? And then the person you're telling the joke to says, oh, yeah, then what happens? <laughs> and you're like, uh, well, the the horse says, well, that's not very nice. That's... Uh, you're being prejudiced against people who have long faces. And the bartender says, no, I was just commenting that you have a very long face. I actually think it's quite beautiful. You know, you're, you're sort of struggling to reverse engineer. There was, there, was a, there was a full stop, a period, as they say in America, uh, on the <laughs> yeah. end of that sentence. And now all of a sudden you're scrambling to come up with more story. And then what happens? Well, the horse and the bartender, they end up striking up a friendship and the, they actually go into a partnership on another bar called the Black Stallion. And it does quite well. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, it's mm-hmm. like the story was over. The story was over when you said, why the long face? You know, unless you plan your sequels out ahead of time, which I can't think of anyone except for maybe George Lucas. I remember years ago reading an interview with George Lucas mm-hmm. where he said, oh, no, I had, the, I had the whole trilogy planned out in my mind. But most of the time... A sequel, a, a, a hit movie is a surprise. And so a sequel is a champagne problem that comes along later. I was just struggling to think of more story, like what could happen next. Mm-hmm. With, the, with the Amanda and Jigsaw relationship, I just remember watching that first movie and thinking, well, this is interesting. He, she feels that he helped her. Like, mate, what if she's mm-hmm. working for him? What if she's an acolyte now? She's a member of this Jigsaw cult and... And um, it was interesting to write that. I think um, Tobin Bell and Shawnee Smith really sunk their teeth into that kind of relationship. And I, I liked the idea that she was becoming him. As you can tell, I'm not very good at concise answers when being interviewed for a podcast. <laughs> I, really, I really do appreciate all the backstory, though. Um, it's fascinating to, to hear kind of a little bit of your, of your thought process as you're you know, you're given the the chance to write these sequels that you had and envisioned when you were writing the first one. And I was wondering kind of, you know, you've spoken a little bit about that particular uh, pressure of, of building additional story onto a story that you, that was over. Can you talk a little bit about the, um, the challenges of writing, particularly Saw 3, now that there, there is all of these sequels and the, the commercial pressures and the franchise in place? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a pressurized environment, e- even time-wise, because they had this release schedule mapped out. They mm. wanted to release a Saw movie every Halloween. So what it meant was that you would finish one Saw film on a Friday and start working on the next one on Monday. <laughs> the turnaround mm-hmm. time was incredible. It was like planning Glastonbury or something, local reference. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it was like, you know, as soon as, as soon as Glastonbury 2016 has finished, you need to start planning Glastonbury 2017. That's Coachella for you Americans listening. Um, uh, or Bonnaroo, take your pick. It's, it's like you, you, the, the, the turnaround time doesn't allow you any rest, and that's what it kind of felt like for those sequels I was involved in. It's, it seemed like the second we finished Saw 2, it was time to start whipping up the idea for 3. And, and they actually had a pretty unique thing going for a while. I think Saw might be the only film franchise in the world that, has released its sequels one per year for that long, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the third film was, I can reveal here, for the first time. So I had three quarters written a script for Saw Three uh-huh. that I was really into. It was a similar story, not exactly the same, but similar to mm-hmm. the Saw Three that you saw, pardon me, but it was still involving Amanda and mm-hmm. Jigsaw, and Jigsaw being kept alive by a surgeon, as you saw. Mm-hmm. The difference was that the surgeon in the script I was writing was Carrie Elways' character. <gasps> the film opened with him crawling out of the bathroom and Jigsaw finding him. In the, in the, in the finished movie, it's this female nurse uh, and her husband is going mm-hmm. through this maze to find him. In the film that I was writing, it was Lawrence Gordon, the character was working on Jigsaw, and the person trying to find him was Monica Potter, his wife. I mean, thank you for sharing that. That's such a, as much as I love Saw 3, I also now have this alternative version of Saw 3 in my head too. Well, you can, you can sort of see how 
Yeah. I think the film opened with Monica Potter's character from the from the first film yeah. sitting there at home grief-stricken about her husband who's been missing for a month or two and the police are telling her we, we, he, there's no trace of him, we don't know where he went, he may be guilty mm-hmm. of murder. And then she receives this little package in the mail from, from Jigsaw saying that if you want to find your husband, he's still out there. I'm very conscious of, of your time and I wanted to kind of ask you one last question that kind of ties into something you mentioned at the beginning of our chat of saw changing your life and, and making it with, with your friend, with, with James Wan. Obviously, I wanted to ask you kind of, was there anything that from the making of that first film that stands separately from the rest of the Saw films for you, as as we've discussed, that you took into your future, your future films, especially as a director? Oh, gosh. I mean, so many things. It was, it was so awe-inspiring to me that we were actually making a film. I guess the, the thing about human beings is we take things for granted very quickly. We quickly evolve to adapt to new surroundings in both good and bad ways. You know, a, a good way would be if you suddenly had to move out of your house and or move into an apartment because you had lost your job, something really bad had happened in your life. And th- there's that human ability to adapt sometimes or if, if something uh, something traumatic happens, like you get divorced and you, you adapt to this new life after enough time goes by, you kind of sort of acclimatise to this new life, like, okay, this is the way it mm-hmm. is. And I, the bad side of that I think is when it's like, somebody wins the lottery and they're like, I'm rich and they're so happy for a week. And then after a year, they're like, it's no longer interesting anymore. Or um, somebody becomes, somebody achieves their dream of becoming an actor. And at first they're super happy about it. And then after a while you start to get used to it and you start to adjust your expectations of life. And I guess for me, when I'm on a film set now, I, I still love it. I'm still so happy to be doing this for a job. But that initial spark of joy that I had when we were making the Saw film, I'll never be able to get that back because I've been on so many film sets now that I guess I've become accustomed to it. Mm. It's not that I take it for granted, but I there, there was something there was something so pure about that first movie because I couldn't believe we were doing it. I think in a way when James and I were struggling after film school, you know, trying to come up Mm. with a movie, I think a large part of me didn't really believe that we would ever make it in the film industry. I tried to shove that voice to the back of the room and Mm. not listen to it. But I I wasn't like the most confident person in the world, you know. I, I think James was probably a lot more confident than I was, but secretly I didn't really believe we were going to make it in the film industry. And so it was this like huge surprise to me when we were actually standing on the set. And I remember the Mm -hmm. first day I flew from Melbourne to Los Angeles, James had gone ahead of me because he's the director. So he needed to be there for Mm pre-production. So he was already in Los Angeles working on the film. And I came a few weeks later and I remember getting off the plane and one of the production assistants on the film picked me up at the airport at LAX and he drove me into the production office. And it was kind of, trippy that there were all these people sitting around working on our film and then somebody said do you want to go and look at the set for the movie and I was like yeah I do so they drive me you know to the set which was this (laughs) decrepit warehouse in Los Angeles that mostly gets used for like music videos or pornography at the time and (laughs) it's still standing to this day by the way the Lacey Street Studios in Los Angeles so I go there to the studio and I walk in and there's a bunch of carpenters and set dressers right in the middle of building that main set, that bathroom set. Mm-hmm. So I remember walking in in the middle of the day, I go up this ramp and I walk into this, um, I can see, you know, from the outside a, a film set looks weird, it's all wood and it's like these wooden support beams. It doesn't look yeah, like anything. yeah. 
And then mm-hmm. when, when you walk inside, suddenly you're in the UN or on board a spaceship and it's this, there's this weird discombobulated effect of like, wait, I'm, now I'm in a spaceship. And so I, I walked in and all of a sudden I was standing in this bathroom that had been living in my head for the last two years, except now it was a physical thing. And all I could hear was just carpenters just like hammering and like people drilling into the wall and banging and they were all working furiously to get it done. And it was just really overwhelming. I just started tearing up. I was just like crying. I was just couldn't believe that there was a bunch of, and they didn't even know who I was. I remember some carpenter like <laughs> barreled past me. He was carrying some heavy power saw and he like, elbows past me and he's like, could you guys move? <laughs> I felt like saying, hey, buddy, uh, I'm the reason you're wielding that power saw. But at that time, uh, you know, I, I was just happy to be there. So I was like, sure. And um, so I guess I try to take that with me to other films. Hmm. You know, when I'm standing on a set, I try to remember that initial sense of joy and hmm. luck that I had, um, you know, and and keep that spark alive. I yeah. mean, thank you mm. so much for, for sharing that. And, you know, you're also the reason why we now in London are recording this podcast and revisiting exactly. and thinking and talking for hours about that initial dank bathroom and everything that came out of it. Yeah, it so, is amazing, the ripple effect. You know, if you put something out into the world, it's like, it's like if a butterfly if a butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo, there's an earthquake in Brazil. <laughs> it's just because James Wan and I decided to make a movie for ourselves, somebody is now doing a podcast in England. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Like it's and it's it's like what, seventeen years later since yeah. that first movie? And and it's still having an impact. And I never lose sight of that. You know, um mm. this series of films is the whole reason I'm making films today. You know, I have nothing but affection for it. And if if these movies can inspire someone else on the other side of the world to do what James and I did and make their own movie mm-hmm. and, and get into the film business or become creative, then I'm happy about that. Thank you, Lee. Guys, what do you make of that original version of Saw 3 where Dr. Lawrence Gordon is actually the one doing the surgery on Jigsaw? revelations and twists that would have been fantastic i mean i'm a big fan of dr lynn denlam but uh yeah that would have been fun this is like my own personal uh, it's a wonderful life what if dr lynn denlam had never existed <laughs> doesn't bear thinking about now it's time to drill into our favorite recurring feature on seeing saw it's jigsaw's trap race a definitive ruling on the best trap in any particular film that we're discussing which will then go up against our reigning champion trap so far Last time, the hands-in-the-box razor trap from Saw 2 controversially beat out the bathroom trap from the first film. I'm saying controversial because I was a fan of the bathroom trap. But what's it going up against from Saw 3? We've got the chains trap, the guy pulling chains out of his body and then encountering a bomb. We've got the rack, which is the unpunished drunk driver getting all his arms and legs and head twisted off. We've got the freezer. We've got the angel. This is Dina Meyer getting her ribs opened while suspended from the ceiling. And we've got the pig trap. I absolutely love the pig trap. And a bit of trivia, apparently that is Tobin Bell's favourite trap so far in the franchise as well at this oh. point in time. So... Who has a favourite trap from that little lot that they'd like to go to bat for? I'm going to side with you and Mr. Jigsaw. I love the pig trap. The pig trap is so cool. I mean, it's got the disgustingness. The judge is in this vat and he's being gunged effectively with the corpses of pigs that have gone through a grinder. The pigs are covered in maggots. It's real maggots that they had on set, glued to the fake pig corpses. No. Really? Real maggots. That can't be (sighs) sterile. Yeah, no, they sterilise the maggots first. Um, You can sterilise maggots? What, live maggots? There's a lovely bit with David Hackle on the DVD featurette talking about how they sterilise the maggots and then they glue them all over the pig corpses with honey. I do urge you to watch the featurettes on the Saw DVDs because they are wonderful. And yeah, apparently these maggots are like falling off the pigs. They're all over the set. Absolutely. God, I mean, I'm not saying Judge Halden is not a good role, but I'm not sure if it's worth <laughs> playing that role. Did he know when he signed up that he was going to get real maggots potentially covering him? Because watching know. it back the most recent time, I was like, I wonder how they made that gloop not disgusting. Like mm. it's probably just odorless and tasteless and the bits yeah. of stuff in it are just made of foam or whatever. But... Oh my god. It had real maggots in the sludge. And 
adding, I hope, weight to my case, that's not the sort of only element of this. It's not just a disgusting trap. Jeff has to burn his kids' toys, so it's Mm. also an emotional trap. And I think actually also we should say that this is probably the first time in the Saw franchise that they evolve it from beyond the idea that you have to sacrifice something of yourself in order to survive the trap. This is sacrificing something of yourself in order to save somebody mm-hmm. else. And then they're adding the treble whammy of the fact that in Jeff's case, the person that you're saving isn't just some random person. It's someone who had something to do with the death of your son. So it's probably the most cohesively emotional set of traps, I think. It works on multiple levels. You're absolutely right. And it also, considering that a lot of the traps are very mechanical, and often involve the twisting or the severing of limbs. This is one where it's very slow and a very gross potential death, being drowning in maggoty pig sludge. (laughs) And another one that gets brought up a lot in relation to Saw 3 is the freezer trap with the nude woman. My issue with the freezer room is, I mean, there's like a set menu with each of these traps that Jeff goes through, which is... He's told who the person is. He feels this rage at them because of their involvement in his son's death. He usually does a little bitter monologue about like, how could you? I'm into it. Angus McFadden, is that? Sorry, they're all just real people to me. I don't know. What do you mean, (laughs) Angus McFadden? Who's that? You mean Jeff Denlon? (laughs) He's in Braveheart. He's in Titus Andronicus, which is quite a fun one because Titus Andronicus is the most saw-like of the Shakespeare plays involves people eating sons in pies and all sorts of vengeance and murder. Way to make this podcast highbrow, I love it. (laughs) So you get the monologue from Jeff and then usually he'll see sense and decide to do his bit to try and get the person out of the trap. The problem for me with the freezer room is all he has to do is grab a key which is behind some sort of very cold pipes and in the film he touches his cheek up against one of the pipes and it gets all torn off and it's pretty grisly. He's like wearing three layers. He could just pop one of them off and put it between his cheek and the pipe. That's some quick thinking. You'd do better in this situation. It just feels too easy for me, this one. So which are you pitching for in this episode, Charlie? Saw 3's best trap. Well, I would like to at least talk about the rack, because I think the rack is really hard to watch. This is the large device in which the drunk driver, Timothy Young, is placed into. And one thing I love about it is that the actor who plays Timothy Young keeps saying ow throughout (laughs) Perhaps the only sore victim who keeps saying ow as it's happening. But quite convincingly, like I've never heard an ow that was so invested with actual pain. It's a good performance. Mm. It's so gruesome and very much stays with you after watching this film. It might be the most graphic trap up until now. There's this glass case with a shotgun inside it and a key hanging in front of the shotgun. If you get the key, you can then unlock the trap and let Timothy Young out of it. And the downside is that it fires the shotgun when you get the key, but then you just have to kind of not stand in front of the shotgun when you're grabbing the key. And in practice, what happens is Judge Holden accidentally stands behind him. Yeah, you make it sound so simple, but the judge falls foul of it. I know it went wrong in this case. I just think this is like pushing Jigsaw's theory of if you know the human mind, there's no such thing as a coincidence or whatever. If Jigsaw really predicted that Judge Holden would be wandering around like a plum in the background and get his head shot off, then that is impressive foresight. Jigsaw can see through time. We know this. This is fact. It's canon. I love the alternate version of this trap that they couldn't figure out how to build or something, apparently, was that he was going to be folded up into a box. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, sorry, run that by me again? Like a human origami? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, They were going to make him into a box. They would fold your spine back and keep folding you and folding you until you were... This was Lee Wanell's pitch for this trap. Is it like extreme yoga? Is that what happens if you do Adrian (laughs) yoga with Adrian? If you do enough Adrian, you can survive this trap. That is your challenge. (laughs) I get the folding. At what point would he become a box? Well, like the sh- <laughs> I think it's the shape rather than he becomes the box. So the strongest two, potentially, the rack, are we saying, and the pig vat. And I think at the moment we're two against one, unless, Anna, you've been convinced by Charlie's chat about the rack. No, I would have been convinced by the box version of that, but I'm <laughs> firmly with you in the pig sludge. And you know what? Even I'm going to come across to the pig sludge because of your tidbit about the maggots, which is going to keep me up at night. Lovely, the maggots have it. So that's the pig vat, the definitive trap from Saw 3. But how does it stack up against our current winner, the older razor box trap from Saw 2? Charlie, are either of those edging ahead for you as a winner? I think for me, the razor box still has it. It's just so simple. Pig vat. 
pig vat, pig vat. They've had to go so hard with it to make the pig vat compete. Whereas the razor box, I mean, it must have taken Jigsaw 15 minutes to build and it's that potent. What about you, Anna? I love the beautiful simplicity of the razor box, but I have to go with you, Catherine, and the pig vat. Pig vat! Pig vat! for the pig vat, yes. The pigs and the maggots. And it's also, it's on theme, it's on brand, it's pigs. And emotions. There's no justice. (laughs) Convincing victory for the pig vat. I'm Um, going to become Jigsaw. So, Charlie, what have we got coming up next time in Saw 4? Saw 4 is, for me, like the beginning of the next stage of the franchise. Saw 3, in some ways, wrapped up maybe the Jigsaw era, we could call it, or at least the John Kramer era. And now we're going to be meeting a lot more characters and there's going to be a hell of a lot going on. (laughs) There certainly is. Anna, any particular moments you're looking forward to from Saw 4? I'm so looking forward to Detective Eric Matthews getting iced. And don't forget, there is a brand new chapter from the Book of Saw coming very soon. Spiral, starring Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Max Minghella and Marisol Nichols is coming soon. Will there be traps? Will there be twists? Will there be boot crabs? The only way to find out is to see it. It's out on May the 14th or the 17th if you're in the UK. Thanks so much for listening and please remember to rate, review, put your vengeance aside and forgive. Seeing Saw is a Little Dot Studios production for Lionsgate. The show is hosted by Catherine Bray, Anna Bogutskaya and Charlie Shackleton. It is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel with production support from Ellie Aitken. And we are edited by Content is Queen. Oh no, Anna. It's happening again. Are we stuck in? Catherine's trivia trap. You are. You're caught in my trivia trap. The producers of Saw 3 asked the producers of Scary Movie 4 if they could use their bathroom set for this film as it was a replica of the sets used in Saw and Saw 2. IMDb says exact replica, but actually if you listen to the commentary on the DVD with Darren Lynn Bowsman, he says Scary Movie 4 got plenty of details wrong that they had to then correct. The quality of the walls, I imagine, the smears. You can't get those Saw smears anywhere else. You've got to go straight to the source.